Welcome everyone to episode 66 of the Bodybuilding Down Under podcast. Thanks for joining your usual hosts, myself, Lawrence, DY and DC. And we're going to get stuck into some questions today. And this one is a bit more about our own journeys in the past six months. So rather than doing a bit of a recap, I thought I'd ask, what's something that you've changed recently with your training and nutrition in the last six months that has made a noticeable difference with your progress? So Lawrence, I'm going to throw this over to you first. Mm. Well, I can't really pick something to do with training, I don't think, because I have not really in the last few months been in a position where muscle gain is possible. But I think I'll probably just select something from my contest prep that's been different this time around that I think has made things a whole lot better. And I've probably alluded to it before on the podcast, but as a general thing, I'd probably just say the notion of trying not to make prep easier. I would say, you know, trying to not go for like the diet options, trying to overconsume voluminous foods or, you know, like sugar-free jelly or even like sugar-free beverages in excess and things like that. I think that a massive reason why this prep has been so much easier when it comes to hunger, cravings, food focus is because I have just been keeping things extremely simple, keeping things extremely basic, not trying to make my food overly palatable. Like I think you alluded to once, Jack, it's like in the off season, that's the times where you want to make it palatable so that you finish the meal and go, Ooh, I'd actually like a bit more of that because chances are you're going to be trying to, you're struggling to get the food in. Whereas in prep, it's, it's not like you're, I'm intentionally trying to make it taste bad, but I am intentionally trying to make it taste plain so that I'm not like just smacking my lips going, Oh, that was incredible. I, I wish I had a bit more because even with a bland meal, you're going to be feeling like that in prep. So I would probably say that would be what I'd select given, you know, the context of prep and whatnot. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. Definitely some good takeaways there for competitors. DC, what about you? It's mm, a great question. I think, I think sometimes when you train with somebody else, even if it's just like a spontaneous session, uh, depending on, on that person and how they like to train, like for example, Whenever I train with B or I train with like Jono, uh, you know, you, 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 you sort of feed off each other's ego a little bit within that session. And I think it, it sometimes unlocks like a new tier of intensity that you may have somewhat closed the door off, you know, onto your own training. And sometimes through, I guess, training with another individual, you realize that, hey, there's probably an, an extra you know, tier that I can level up with regards to my training intensity. And I think even some of the most advanced athletes do get a little bit complacent on occasion with their training. So I, for, for myself, it's like, I train with some other people every now and then I'm like, Oof, you know, I haven't been backing off in my sessions, but I probably could dig a little bit deeper, deeper and fight for, you know, that additional rep or two within a set. So that's probably been my, I guess my most recent revelation and uh, it certainly helped recently to just nudge my training intensity up a bit more. Yeah, for sure. What about you, DY? I think the biggest one for me was probably taking the off-season nutrition a lot more seriously than what I had previously. Like previously, I would, in my last building phases, it might be like more macro focused. Like, 
in the off season, I might push some meals back. I might like, you know, not eat them as timely as what I would like, you know, when you're in prep, you've got everything timed. You want really good digestion and stuff like that. And when it would swap over the off season or a building phase, I'd kind of let that slip where now I put a lot bigger emphasis on it. I figured out a pre-workout meal that can help me get large amounts of calories in digestion isn't an issue so that way my training sessions are always top quality and then you know scattering another four to five meals out throughout the day so in that way obviously ensuring that digestion is good adding in more fruit and veg i know you never thought you'd hear it um but yes that has been the case and everything's been going really good in fact i'm pretty much at the highest off-season calories i've ever consumed and to be honest i go to bed pretty much hungry each night in the off season which means there's more room to push it if needed so i think treating my off season nutrition um with a little bit more respect has definitely been one that's helped a lot just a liter of v8 juice every night you'll be fine tick those Whoa. fruits and veggies right off that still goes in with that uh pre-workout meal though so don't <laughs> get that twisted uh for myself like something actually a little bit more simple than you guys but I've actually started uh, extending the range of motion a little bit more on my leg extensions just by using some fairly thick like yoga blocks, I, I think maybe 10 to 15 centimeters. And honestly, just that bigger stretch in the length and position, sorry, in the, sh in the, wait a second. Oh, what a loser. <laughs> what an idiot. Where'd you get that degree from? Oh. Lucky it's a nutrition degree, but it is lengthened. There we go. No, yeah, man, he's got a Bachelor of Exercise Science as yes, well. Yes, I do. Ah. Howard. I was, I was doubting myself <laughs> on air, unfortunately. But yeah, in the lengthened position, um, honestly makes a, uh, I think, starting to see a little bit more, whether it's just the uh, placebo effect, but like a little bit more thickness around like the teardrop region of the quad, mm. um, which I guess would make make sense as well. I love how Lawrence just saw that opportunity and just like <laughs> jumped at the mic, just like, oh. <laughs> Mate, he is such a polished individual, Mr. Radford Smith. So you don't get these opportunities. Like, you know, someone who's just pretty simple overall, like DY, he's going to be throwing out those chances almost every episode, you know, because he's pretty dull. But Jack, who's really <laughs> on top of it, you don't get that every now and again, mate. You, you really have to take those chances. <laughs> the roasting of Jack. Damn. Yeah, so I I was going to follow up with yeah DC's point and just say that I I agree and I've experienced that myself and I think maybe for experienced trainees like it maybe instead maybe they've been think they've been training within zero to three reps in reserve and they have but they've been erring on the side of three reps in reserve and kind of makes you think oh maybe I can push this a little bit closer to to zero reps in reserve for some exercises. Mm, like the other week I, with one of my sets on my pendulums, I like, I decided I just wanted to take it to failure. So full, full, you know, mechanical tech, I guess, technical failure in the sense of, uh, once I can no longer ascend through the concentric, like I'm done and dusted. And so I took it to failure and I realized that I had like a few more reps in reserve than perhaps what I had previously conceived, you know, I was at and, um, so every now and then I don't mind actually encouraging like failure on a set just to kind of somewhat show where the envelope sits as to where you can take a set, right? Yeah. Yeah, I would say that those, for me at least, the the lower body pressing movements are some of the toughest to take to failure. Mm. Just uh, mentally and physically very, very tough compared to like upper body pressing, which is fairly, fairly simple. Yeah, um, absolutely. Just to preface as well, just make sure you've got like stoppers and everything like that yeah. set up. So, so you are somewhat, you know, safe when you're doing this. 
But if anyone wants to, because uh, I was talking to you about this, Lawrence, about the what you use, and you kind of use a foam roller, but I've the pad at rigs, it's like a rectangular pad. So like trying to attach like a foam roller to that would be difficult. So like the yoga blocks work quite well because they're big surface area. They're not rounded. So um, the shin fits very nicely on them and they're, they're only like 10 or 15 bucks from Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. Or if you're serious about your training, just take a, a welding solder and iron into the gym and, mm. you know, sew on yeah. another piece of metal essentially. But no, to be fair, the life fitness leg extension that I do that with, it does have a circular pad. So putting on a circular foam roller, like as long as I can wrap the resistance band around it enough times, which I think I have to get like four times around, then I can, I can make it pretty sturdy. But yeah, if you had like a square one, it's probably just going to roll around all over the place. And it's a shame because there's so few leg extensions that really get you into that lengthened position without having to to play around with it. Like I think a good one is the sort of unilateral hammer strength pin loaded leg extension. With that, you can sort of shift one side of your hips forward to really get a big stretch. So I think that one is great. But, you know, the normal hammer strength one and the Cybex one I've noticed probably is probably the worst, to mm. be honest. Like even if you put the seat all the way forward, you're really just not touching the length and position for the quads. So I would say that potentially if it is an area that you notice that you're underdeveloped and you really want to focus on your quad training with all the evidence coming out about long muscle lengths and length and partials and things like that, I think it's a no brainer to try and hit as much lengthened position work for the quads as possible. If that's what you're trying to improve. Yeah. Mm. The Panada piece is actually quite, quite nice. Like the one that's at, the, the powerhouse in in Stafford uh you can set the the I guess the you know the padding above the above the foot quite high back you can actually set it pretty far back and then I can actually sit quite far back into the seat as well I don't think it's an adjustable seat but it's sort of lent back quite a bit as well so end up getting that sort of length in position across the hip and then across across the knee as well it's quite nice mm. is that plate loaded pin loaded oh okay I haven't seen yeah. the banana one yeah I think uh, this is also a good lesson for some people who maybe are on the shorter side or maybe opposite super tall, like don't be afraid to be a little bit inventive with certain pieces. If you can modify them a touch to, um, for example, shorter people, if it, like adding some yoga blocks on your shoulders in a, in a hack squat will extend the ROM. So those sorts of things might be useful. Mm, and that could even extend to, I guess, doing things like, let's say stiff leg deadlifts from the floor. Like if you're a, incredibly tall individual i mean the 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 diameter of the plate is you know the olympic plate stays the same right irrespective of of how tall you are so someone who is just really tall might struggle more with pulls from the floor so i guess it's that you know you could elevate elevate the plates up and and therefore work within a range that perhaps works for your levers and your biomechanics a little bit better yeah for sure so next question says good and bad aspects that come with a pro card. I think we'll maybe touch on a natural pro card in a natural federation. So someone who maybe gets it on their first year, like what are some of the pros and cons that, or even not their first year, but they might compete five or six years and eventually get it. But Lawrence, what, uh, no, I'll hand this over to DY first. What do you think are some pros and cons of that? 
Well, I think everyone always wants a pro card. That's like a lot of the goal for nearly any amateur competitor. But even like Lawrence, like he got offered the pro card and he turned it down. Like, you know, pro card like pretty much means that you're pro worthy and you're able to step into the pro ranks. Um, but sometimes getting that pro card can be detrimental. Like, you know, getting your pro card so early on pretty much means that you aren't able to compete as an amateur anymore. So if you might get it at a regional show or a smaller show and you've been gunning for the pro card and you end up scoring it down the line, it could actually be extremely detrimental. And I was listening to this on like flex success as podcast. Um, and they went into it with a little bit more detail about like, you know, the downsides of actually getting that pro card so early on, because it then does limit your competing chances. And not only that, if you're not pro worthy in your physique, then it's pointless having the card because you're going to get absolutely roasted every time you compete. You step in a pro lineup and you're not pro worthy. The cards nearly void. It means that you pretty much are just going to have to have a huge off season, which a lot of people will end up burning out on to then be at that pro level. They might not even like if it takes you 10 years worth of games to be at that pro level, chances are a lot of competitors probably won't make it that far. So then they're not going to be able to compete as an amateur every time they compete as a pro that pretty much goes down the hole. So, but obviously there are other sides as well, where it opens you up to more international shows, like, you know, being able to do WMBF worlds, for example, like some of the ICN pro shows over in different countries. Like, so at the exact same time, if you are pro worthy, it definitely does open you up to a lot more opportunities. And, you know, it is a very good reward to your journey that you've had to get to stage. But, you know, one of those things is you get very limited chances to compete zero state shows anymore zero little small shows it's pretty much like only national and world shows especially within the natural scene anything to add on that guys not really say- i mean i think i think you covered it pretty pretty well right like uh i i guess that one of the main downsides would just be the, the amount of shows that you're exposed to right i guess that that at the end of the day is probably the main the main detriment of sort um and just like you stated potentially not being pro worthy of sorts but yeah i mean other than that uh like it might it might provide a a ramp up in motivation so even if someone wasn't let's say quote unquote pro worthy and they won it at a smaller show i mean you could then argue like they were pro worthy because they did win the pro card but uh in terms of then i guess the argument about being highly competitive in the pro scene might be a different story but hey it might help to push that person to to really make progress within their off season maybe out of somewhat pressure you know that that they they need to kind of level things up moving into their next their next showing so yeah i think there's always going to be pros and cons associated with this sort of stuff but i guess if the person is driven to make progress and be competitive realistically nothing probably changes with respect to their training and their nutrition it should be for the most part on point regardless if their plan is to compete again and do well I would say that would probably be the only time that I'd consider doing like a untested show is if I'd already gained my like natural pro card in either ICN or WMBF or something like that. And there just weren't that many opportunities to compete. And assuming there was not too many crossovers between weekends for shows, like I'd probably end up doing like an IFBB show just to you know, make it worth your while actually getting down to that level of conditioning, like potentially use that as a bit of a warm up show to test a peak or something like that. But I think as well, like, I don't know, depending on how long you've been at it by that stage, 
you know, maybe the only thing you are concerned about is the WMBF worlds, the, the natural Olympia. Like if you've been bodybuilding for 15 or 20 years, you might not be too fussed if you've only got one or two shows to actually, you know, bring your stage package because at that point, you know, you're competing to get to that high level. Like, yes, I know that, you know, people compete for the love of it, but I don't know. I think I maybe wouldn't mind only having a few shows by that point, because hopefully at that stage of my career, like there's only a few things I'm wanting to tick off. Yeah. And I mean, you're, this is your fourth comp prep now and you've competed more than any of us. And like you've been rising up through the ranks, like every season you're doing better and better. Do you think there's something to be said around like every, every time you compete, like you're, um, you're becoming a bigger name in the amateur levels. Whereas maybe if you got your first uh, pro card first time around, because like, to be fair, when you, when you were, when you did compete for the first time, they were handing pro cards out at the state show. So it was very much a possibility that you could have got one. Um, but what, what do you think about that? Yeah, no, absolutely. And yeah, it's crazy to look back on because if you compared like where I placed that day, the only person who had beaten me that day was Sean, who went on to win his yep. card. And if I look at my physique from 2017 and go, oh, this guy wasn't that far away from a card, I'm like, dude, <laughs> like literally I looked like I was, I don't know, eight weeks out. You know what I mean? Like, okay, for a 17-year-old, I looked okay. But I think for me, I definitely think that, you know, the day that I do win it, is it's going to mean a lot to me and I can't see it meaning the same amount to someone who has won it on the first time around. Like, that's just my opinion. Now, yes, that's different for someone like DC because he's been in the sport for over a decade and his training was gearing towards that. But if you have someone who was just like a bit of a genetic freak, they've always been training. Someone said, hey, you should think about competing. They've done a contest prep. They win their pro card in the first year. Like in my mind, it's not going to mean as much to that person. So I think there is something to be said for like, you know, waiting your turn and doing the rounds. And yeah, like you said, I've been at it since 2017 and I, I still don't have the pro card that I want. And I might not get it this year, you know, and, and that's fine because at the end of the day, the ICN pro card, to use that as an example, that's not an easy card to win. You know, you have to win your class at nationals. And if you win your class at nationals, you are a very, very good bodybuilder. So if sometimes there is year, only one class as well, like for bodybuilding. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, you know, if that happens this year, awesome. If not, oh, well, it's not really going to change a whole lot in the grand scheme of things. Obviously with WMBF, we don't really know because I think they're planning on giving away two pro cards, but you know, it's the first time the show's run. So we're going to have to see what happens there. But at the end of the day, I think that, you know, the pro card doesn't end up changing a lot for the people that get them. Yeah, maybe you could argue as like an online coach, it's nice to have pro bodybuilder or pro men's physique in your Instagram bio. Maybe that attracts a few more people. But, you know, I think we've all spoken about this before, like the way you approach bodybuilding should be of a pro mindset even before you turn pro. Like I know that we all have, you know, a pro caliber approach to the way that we train regardless of the fact that you know jack and i don't have the cards yet but I, I do believe that if you do that for long enough eventually the stars will align and you'll get that show where no one rocks up that's better than you because that's the other thing you need to consider it's like you know it's all well and good to say like yeah i won the show and i but at, you, you need to get to a show where no one rocks up that's better than you that's sort of 
how the cookie crumbles. And for some people, that's going to happen when they're at their best and they win the card, unreal. For other people, that's going to happen when they're maybe not at 100% and they're still going to win it anyway. So I think placing less emphasis on the card itself and more on your approach and your journey is probably a much more sustainable way to be in the sport. Yeah, for sure. And I think now in today's year, like 2023 with natural bodybuilding in Australia, if you get a pro card, like chances are you, you certainly deserve it, at least in terms of your, your caliber of physique. Um, especially like when I first watched the, my first ICN show back in 2017, as I was saying, like they were handing them out at state shows. So a lot more pro cards were given, I'm assuming just to increase the the pro pro card pool. But now with everyone having to go to nationals and IFBB, uh, arguably even being even more competitive because they, they don't give it out per height class. They give it out per, uh, per overall. Um, and I, I know that's, I believe that's also what they do in the UK as well, like at the UK DFBA. Um, so that's even, even more competitive, but certainly a good discussion. And this next one, probably a fairly a simple, simple answer maybe, but DC, I'll throw this over to you, like intermittent fasting and bodybuilding. Like, what are your thoughts on it? Like, is it mm. worthwhile? Yeah, I could see a modified sort of protein fast being, being something that is, you know, okay. As long as, as long as our training bout isn't potentially in the morning, like if we're training a little bit later in, in the afternoon and we decide to, to run a bit of a protein fast in the morning, you know, just as a means of maybe someone has a really busy, busy uh, time at work in the morning, just don't have as much of a window to, to consume. Maybe they push that meal out a little bit further, but I mean, realistically, if our goal is to just build as much lean muscle mass as possible, I just don't think there's, there's vast utility to, to fasting. And I guess this different definition of what fasting is, right. Cause like some people could say, Oh, I fast until, you know, nine o'clock and I'm up at seven and it's like, well, that's probably okay. <laughs> that's, that's not really a big deal. Right. Whereas mm. if I'm, let's say I'm up at, you know, 5am and I fast all the way up until one, two o'clock, uh, probably not ideal, right. As in terms of a bodybuilder, that's trying to fit in an ample amount of protein feeds within their day, not really backload all of their nutrition and to create better overall nutrient timing within the day probably more ideal to spread that nutrition out a little bit better. So I think there's definitely context to the question, but as an umbrella sort of recommendation, I don't think it's fantastic. Mm. I think a lot of people fast as well for like the perceived health benefits, which there are some health benefits associated with fasting, but there are, you can actually achieve those health benefits just by calorie restriction. Like they're literally mimicked if you're, for example, if a bodybuilder is on a comp prep, then you're, you're going to be receiving the same benefits as if you were fasting. So yeah, Lawrence is living an extra hey, 10 years. Dude, that's, that's the only reason I'm doing this. <laughs> when I get to one week out, I'm done. You know, I'm just yeah. doing this for longevity, mate. You know, mm. and the social media clout as well. And then you just, wow, it. that goes without yeah. saying Jack. So, but like, I think if, if you then try and fast in the off season, like you're trying to fit in more food in a smaller window, not going to be great for digestion, not going to be great for your performance in the gym. You'll feel super uncomfortable. And yeah, so there, there is a time and a place for fasting, but if you are trying to take bodybuilding seriously, I, I think it's probably not the, the best thing to do. Mm, I think sometimes it can also be used as somewhat of a, like a bandaid effect for potentially some individuals that don't have a lot of, uh i guess self-control when it comes to nutrition and portions and things like that so 
perhaps as a means of mitigating how much someone eats throughout the day, they might choose to fast. So then there's less of an opportunity to consume. But then I think if someone is just bulking their food into a very short window at the end of the day, also as a means of potentially feeling more full as well, uh, then it could be just approaching nutrition with just not not a not a long term solution. I look at it as so. Uh, you know, I think it's it's somewhat of a band aid effect to try and aid someone and 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 their approach towards nutrition and food and their relationship with food by creating more restriction within a window as opposed to just getting better at managing food as a whole and how you view it and how you're able to relay back to yourself, you know, the sensation of fullness and and understand that more in terms of satiety, et cetera. Uh, and not, you know, not eat overboard and just, yeah, just generally have a better relationship with food. So mm. I think sometimes, although intermittent fasting can provide some benefits for individuals to taper food down, like to food down portions, et cetera, I think for some, it's, yeah, a bandaid effect for the management of, of food. For sure. BY, this one is for you. What are some of the biggest mistakes that competitors need to avoid on show day? I think first one is like more or less like, food choices so like not going this super slow digesting foods like cutting out some of the vegetables i've seen some people do their peak weeks and show days and they're sitting there having 250 grams of asparagus for breakfast um probably not the best bet especially if you're planning to carb load that day so pick foods that you know are going to digest Plus the diuretic effects from from asparagus yeah exactly so and then like you know some tilapia in there as well i think that that one's the biggest one is food choices like you know obviously picking foods that work with you are easily digestible don't go playing around with you know crap that you know doesn't work with you slow digesting a bunch of greens that's probably the first bet there um you know trying to play around too much with like sodium and water if you've also been looking really good and you know you've got ample amounts of like you know where you sit in terms of sodium and um water intake for the day don't fuck around with it too much don't go crazy water loading 10 liters the day before probably not going to work out too well same goes with like show day and exact goes for the opposite as well like you know trying to dehydrate large amounts um like you know pull water for like two three days prior i've seen some crazy water loading strategies so i think those are two from me i'm sure you boys could probably add another one or two on there mm, i've seen a fair few competitors eating like the the light jelly like sugar-free jelly backstage and yeah, I just, look, the goal is when you jump on stage is to be as tight as possible, right? Like through the midsection, if you're a male competitor, you want to be able to strike a vacuum or at least be able to tense down on the abs, not have any visual distension through the abdominals. So you're really mindful around how you manage, for example, fiber, food volume, uh, fat intake, et cetera. Like I think these are all important considerations. And truthfully, I would say most competitors are going to be okay dealing with a little bit of hunger backstage. Like it's okay. It's okay to experience a bit of hunger backstage. I think, I think back on my season and yeah, I, I was, I was pretty hungry backstage. Like I was eating foods as in rice cakes and maple syrup and, you know, um, lollies and things like that, but it's not overly satiating, but your focus is so much on the show. Like you just don't, you kind of just ignore that hunger side of things. So Yes please don't consume jelly light and all that stuff backstage because realistically you're just volumizing. That's a volumization strategy and it's going to show on stage and it's going to, you know, potentially, I guess, ruin in a way your X frame tightness through the midsection. And even for like, you know, women's bikini and various, I would say all of the categories you will benefit from having a tighter midsection. So sacrifice it and be a little bit hungry, but it may bump you up in stage placings. <laughs> Yeah. 
I once, I think it was actually at the recent show that, or the most recent one that I attended at Sleeman, and I saw someone carrying like strawberries backstage. And I was like, that is not a show day food. Like strawberries have nothing in them. Like strawberries are like your go-to fruit at the end of prep when you just want to get some fruit in, but you Probably don't want it to be too strawberries. satiety. Yeah. But I would say if I, cause I don't really have anything to add to that boys. It's very good. There is one food that I add in, in peak week that I don't eat regularly throughout prep because it's just a little bit of a, uh, a peak week tradition. I started mm. doing it a few years ago and that is pikelets. So on the first loading day on the Monday, I'll have some pikelets and they always sit really well, like they're super fluffy and like, I don't know, they're not super satiating either, but I don't know if it's a little bit of a idiosyncrasy or just like a little bit of a tradition at this point. But yeah, the first Monday of peak week, we'll always have some pikelets with the meal. I'll probably have it this year with like some, uh, obviously not together, but potentially like the, the egg white omelet that I've been making. That's a good time. But I think that is obviously very different. You know, you're having it six days before the show, I wouldn't go ahead and have something wildly different the day of the show or even the day before the show, to be honest. And I would actually say maybe one thing to add is you do want to mitigate fiber as much as possible. Like, so in my peak week plan, I'm sure you boys are the same. Joey will generally give me fiber targets in the days leading up as well. And normally the fiber the day before is low, but it's not zero. Because if you can at least have a little bit of, you know, fruit and veg on that day, you then open up the possibility for the magical, the incomparable show day poo. And if you can get in a show day poo, hey, it's game over. Everyone else is fighting for second place. You know what I mean? Sure. There is something magical about that, undoubtedly. Yeah. Oh, you just feel, because like, by it that stage you, well, you just feel so tight. Like you hit that show day poo, you stand up in the mirror, you wash your hands. And then you hit that first like flat abdominal, maybe pull a vacuum. And you just go, we're on today, boys. We are on today. Yeah, absolutely. No, I completely agree. I think, yeah, fiber is certainly something that I think a lot of coaches should, should potentially um, manipulate, you know, leading up to the show. And I think generally a good recommendation would be to at least half fiber. And now it somewhat depends on what fiber someone might be on if they're, 70 80 grams of fiber in you know in their in their final weeks of prep even halving that is still pretty high fiber so uh you know i think you would really taper that down and, and probably taper it from sort of lunchtime onwards from that that day beforehand uh consuming potentially a more of a bulk of that fiber in the early am i think is always a good recommendation to go by but yeah you definitely want to have that that um that grand show day poo that's that's for sure I think for myself, I think the first meal I, I kept not on the actual show day itself, but the day before I'd still keep in a certain amount of oats because oats for myself, like <laughs> it had the poos going, like, you know, you tag that with a little bit of um caffeine in there and the bowels were moving very nicely. So that was like one thing I like kept through my entire peak week, but I obviously made sure the fiber from the actual oats itself wasn't crazy high, but I picked something that worked for me and it always worked for me throughout the entirety of the prep. And then I more or less like kept that in. So, but then restricting the fiber through the latter half of the day. Another one that I think you forgot to mention is the pump up routine. Um, you know, one big mistake I see for a lot of people on show day is pumping up like quads, like hugely, like constant tension, like squats. 
like you know maybe if you're doing wellness or something along the lines of that you might be able to get away with it especially like in like the natural side of things you know where maybe the lines don't need to be as prominent and they really do play a big emphasis on like quads but if you're an absolutely peeled bodybuilder and you're doing 100 reps of constant tension but uh squats in the back chances are you're going to fade a lot of the lines so probably shy away from like you know disgustingly pumping up your quads and on the other side of that as well is pumping up extremely extremely hard going onto stage to the point where you cannot hold any poses we've all seen it before they're literally sitting there and they've done 500 push-ups right before going on they literally can't even flex they're just shaking and they've got sweat or the whole tan is ruined so over pumping up is definitely another one um that you probably look out for good recommendation is probably actually backstage either yeah Mm. yeah just asking for just like come on coach I just need that one last little bit of muscle damage. It's just going to get me there. Well, yeah, I'm still trying to plan how I'm going to actually bring the Watson hack backstage with me. DY, I'm going to need your help, mate. Like, We'll fit it on the back of the Audi. No issues at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah, I reckon. I'll get Trav to help us lift it on there, mate. We'll bring a couple of 20s and then we're set. Yeah, perfect. That's ideal. Yeah. Well, I mean, you'll need at least 12 plates for that Watson hack. If you want it on the lowest setting, that is. Yeah. Yeah, oh, we'll have it complete horizontal yeah reverse banded as well how good oh obviously and yeah just only exclusively lengthen partials backstage just create <laughs> as much soreness as possible have you guys ever been on the uh oh probably dc is because he's a bk uh blood do you train on show day have ever you guys like done a session on show day after the show yes yes I've personally but, never but, done but yes after the show just just yeah to yeah that. obviously just to preface but that yeah I, I personally could not think of anything i'd rather i'd do rather do less than train on show day i'm always absolutely cooked i just want to go home and relax mm, well I, actually at the at the tropic show i competed quite early in the morning and i finished up at like midday or something like that my flight wasn't until i think quite late that afternoon so I had all this gap. So I was pretty revving to go. So I was like, yeah, let's hit it. Let's go train. I was pretty excited about training at a, a gym in Townsville called Strand Fitness. The um the gym that's right on the water there kind of looks like Luigi's mansion. <laughs> As you walk into it, it's like this big mansion. I think it was like an old nightclub. Um, and I was, yeah, I was super excited about training. So that's 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 been a, an example where I might go and hit legs. And I think we have a bit of a tradition in BK conditioning where it's like, we'll usually try and coordinate a leg day like just after the show. So it might be that night or, you know, later that day or something like that. And usually it's because I guess legs are something that's been tapered off quite early within the week in terms of training. So might be something to try and coordinate and get in and just make good use of this extra glycogen that's been pumped into the system post uh, post show. Mm, As everyone will put on their Instagram story, putting those, post-show meals to work that's mm. the classic putting one those the carbs to use putting those carbs to use even though i've just gone way over and i've uh completely eaten my face off let's go put it to use baby actually another big miss depends on if you've wrapped up for the day or not but competitors like snacking in between the categories at the snack bar and it's uh maybe a recipe to spill over on show day as well unless unless you're that like 180 year old dude who's just pulling up for a good time. Like I I remember there's a few shows I've done where it's just like some old guy there and he's just like, he hasn't competed yet for the day, just absolutely smashing the free snack bar, bananas, slices of pizza, lollies. I'm like, bruh, 
you are going to be full as a house out there. Go get it. <laughs> He's getting his money's worth. Try it up, mate. He's like, mate, I paid $50 entry fee to this bloody event. Or well, actually, 50 is probably undercutting it. It's probably like 80, 100. Yeah. <laughs> mate, mate, one for, well, because I recently did all of my sign ons for the first two shows. Man, you forget how expensive this stuff is because it's $150 to get your ICN membership. And then I believe for your entry to the show, which gets you one division, I think Tropics was 180 and states was 190 so already that's what you know over 300 dollars, and that's for one division and then each division after that you're also paying extra so mm. well i think it's certainly a fact within our community that just bodybuilding as a whole is expensive right <laughs> like mm. food bills shows tan makeup hair bikini suit like everything for show day yeah flights accommodation like Yes, you got to do it because you love it. So this next question says, what was the first step you put in place when deciding to compete for the first time? What about you, DY? The first thing I did straight away when I decided was message a coach. I didn't fart around. I didn't like try and do it myself. I literally found a coach that was reputable, like, you know, had a large amount of results and I literally just messaged him and I said, I want to compete. And obviously I had a chat to them. We put a plan together and then went from there. So I think the first thing in nearly anyone's journey, as soon as you decide that you want to compete is finding a bodybuilding coach that's good and, you know, knows what they're on about and is willing to take you to stage. Then I think after that, a lot of the other little pieces kind of fall into place. They'll show you about nutrition. They'll show you about training, you know, training intensity. Um, a good coach will be able to give you all of that going forward. Yeah, I, I agree with you because I think, even if you don't go ahead with competing, like getting in touch with a good coach, like they'll be able to address probably one of the most important questions is like, should you compete at this time? Is competing something that maybe gels well with you? Like, will you enjoy it? A coach will be able to help you answer those questions, which is super important. Mm -hmm. The biggest thing is like direction and a, and a timeline, right? I think that's a huge component because I think a lot of individuals that perhaps look at look at competing and, and decide that they're going to compete don't realize the time that's required to, to comp prep. You know, like uh, maybe they've employed a 15-week a, a comp prep in the past and then they approach a coach. And I would say most coaches these days, I mean, even if someone is in pretty reasonable shape and they say, hey, I want to do a 15-week prep, I think most coaches that would sort of ring, ring alarm bells and be like, okay, I haven't worked with this person before. 15 weeks is really just not a, a large timeline. Uh, so it's just, yeah, direction. And there's always more time that you need than less, right? It's like, we always talk about it in terms of planning our timelines around prep for competitors, like work out your rate of loss, tack on an extra four to five weeks. So yeah, I think a big component there is just direction and creating a realistic time frame as well. Like sometimes it may not be a time frame that is favorable or or that you had in mind. Hey, I want to compete in, you know, this this up and coming season. We're X amount of weeks away. The coach is like, okay, realistically, maybe this isn't the best season for us. We should pursue season A. And I think often when coaches do put forth their recommendation of maybe pushing a season back. It's it's usually because it's like the best the best interest in mind of of the athlete and the and the client. You know, essentially, if someone came to myself and I said, "Look, 
it's probably not doable to 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 pursue this you know this particular season we could look at season a and that person decided that i wasn't the coach for them uh and they decided to go to someone else who would uh allow them to to prep for that show essentially it's bred out of my own mouth but i would rather set up a timeline that's going to be realistic that's allow us that, that will actually allow us to achieve like said goal uh and do in a manner that's going to be yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly right. And Which do it in ways to the next question, well, right? Yeah. I um, completely agree with all of that. And I did contact Joey very, very soon. I think it was like the September I contacted him, but I wanted to compete the next year. And I sort of said, hey, man, like, I want to do this. Can we give it a go? So I think our first prep was 17 weeks. Like we started on New Year's Day. And obviously nowadays with, with that sort of approach to natural bodybuilding, we obviously know we need a bit longer, but I don't really know if it was really necessary for a first timer like me, like the amount of muscle mass I had, I probably just would have looked like complete garbage if he got me any leaner. So I think it worked out okay, but I remember the very first, look, mate, you know how it is. I mean, uh, the kid was a phenom. What can I say? Um, No, I would say that the very first thing I did though, when I thought, all right, I actually want to do this was I went onto ICN's website and I looked at like previous year's results and I was like scrolling down through those like little PDFs that they put up with the tables of the results. And I was like, okay, like teen bodybuilding. Okay. These are the dudes that placed like top three. And I looked, tried to find them all on Instagram and actually see like, is there any, like, am I even just, I'm just dreaming. Like, do I have anything on these guys? Like, could I even achieve this? And so I've looked at their photos. I was like, oh yeah, okay. Like, you know, these guys don't look like miles better than me. Like it doesn't look unattainable. I reckon I could give this a go. So, you know, maybe that's something you want to talk to yourself about before you even contact a coach. It's like, am I anywhere near ready? Now, yes, you probably still want to get a coach because if your approach is complete garbage, then, you know, you obviously need some help to get there. Um, but yeah, for me, that was the the very first step even before, um, inquiring with people that I knew about coaching was actually just seeing like, could I do this? I think that does bring us into the next question. So after this season is done, Lawrence, like how long do you wait until moving on coaches? Oh, like, mate, I, I flicked him already. DY's taken over yeah, from here. He let me know eight weeks ago. So I've actually doing everything from here on out. Yeah, yeah. Because I was like to DY, I was like, hey, dude, like I know my calories are pretty high, but other than the one three-day refeed that we have, like Joey hasn't given me any refeeds, like what's going on? And he said, mate, if I was running things, you'd be getting KFC at least twice a week. So I was like, well, that's a pretty easy trade-off. Now, you know, DY charges three times the weekly rate, but I thought it's worth it. It's worth it. Mm. Not only that, we have an in-person session as well, like where I catch you multiple times where we actually go get KFC together. So it makes it more of like a coaching relationship we get closer as an athlete and coach which then yeah. obviously brings the results exactly yeah well i think kfc is obviously critical in that equation there but depends why you're leaving the coach if you're maybe leaving the coach because your relationship isn't working too well or you feel like your coach is potentially not as well informed or isn't giving you the the correct advice then i'd honestly move fairly fairly soon uh, sooner rather than later I'd probably wait out the comp prep though, just because if I think if anyone, one of us was to receive a inquiry from a competitor who was, let's say five or six weeks out, it's very, very, very tough to take someone on board at that point in the prep, because 
at that point, the majority of the work should be done. And it's very difficult to make too many changes when you're probably 10 or even in the prep full stop. So um, not sure if you have any points to add on to that, DC. Yeah, I think there's like rare occasions where it can work out and very, very rare occasions. And usually it's when someone has been commencing their or they've been conducting their own prep and they're rather experienced as as an athlete and they might have taken themselves to that sort of 90% ready. And it's just that final sort of 10% that we're looking to aim towards and strive towards. Uh, like as, as an example, like Nick, who big Nick, who is down in ACT, uh, back in 2021, he approached me sort of at that mid midway point of his prep and um, was sort of like, hey, man, I've, I've prepped myself, you know, thus far, and this is how I'm looking. But for me to really, you know, refine to and get into 100%, like I need your help for this final bit. So that, that was a, an example where sort of sitting at like, I think it was anywhere between 10 to 15 weeks out or something like that constantly communicating and then we sort of you know dug deep for that final bit and he did really well like he won the gold class he won these pro card and he won won the overall show there so uh and obviously he's competing uh this season down in act in the pro show as well so we've employed a much like obviously lengthier prep this time around way more comprehensive because i'm on board from the beginning but that's just an example of where that kind of like it has worked out well yeah. but honestly it's like a, a needle in a haystack it's other than that it's it's not ideal to take competitor on you know at the final point of prep and you know you'd rather just wait until after right that's probably your best approach i think especially potentially moving coaches in the recovery phase is an important time to do it as well because if you maybe don't trust your coach adequately to help you or assist you or communicate with you enough in that phase we know how important it is so it's important that you do recover well, both mentally and physically and get into a productive off season afterwards. If, if you're still interested in, in competing. So final Nick question Bean, here, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say DC Nick being down in the ACT is, is surprising because his side hamstring in that side chest is, must be approximately the size of the ACT. Is it not? Bigger. Well, I thought so. Yeah. So he actually takes those in New South Wales, correct? Because, <laughs> mate, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. one of the most ridiculous side profiles to a side chest in, in the game, I reckon. That's 100%. Stupid. The man has a set of hamstrings. That's that's for sure. It's like Christmas has come early. Whenever I pull up those check-in photos, I'm like, God damn, dude. Dude, these it's look a joke. Sick. And I'll just look at them for about like a minute straight. I'm like, fuck <laughs> yeah, these hamstrings are mad. <laughs> Nick's, so, Nick's, head, Nick's probably listening to the head's just exploding. <laughs> everyone needs that occasionally. Yeah, for sure. So when on a lean bulk, how do you assess progress? Like mirror versus calipers, weight measurements. What's the best way to assess whether you're actually gaining muscle? DY. I think there's a few metrics that I like to look at. So if they're really trying to make some serious progress, the first one is probably the training performance. Like, you know, given like whatever their target is to bring up, like, for example, if you want to bring up your chest, you know, obviously having a split that works for that and then having lifts that are obviously work for you to target that muscle tissue and then increasing that load over the time. There's no way you're going to be able to double the amount of weight that you do on inclined dumbbells with good form that target the muscle correctly and make absolutely zero progress. Um, you know, you might be able to make a little bit of progress at the start, but if you're doing this over a 50 week span and you go from 
incline dumbbell pressing 20 kilos to 50 kilos. There's no doubt about it. There's going to be chest gains um, alongside that as well. Obviously having a look at um, like weight, you know, making sure that weight's going up, not only in those lifts, but also on the scale. Like, you know, if you start the bulk at 70 kilos, you maybe make your way up to 80 over an X amount of time frame, 10 months or whatever it might be alongside your lifts all going up across the board like exact same thing like you know correlates pretty much to making a large amount of progress another couple of ones in there as well are obviously the calipers that being said they're not really the goal like i wouldn't say they're the gold standard i'd much rather look at the training performance how weight's creeping up um from week to week rather than the calipers i think the calipers are really good for the dieting phase you know to see how much actual fat tissue is being lost especially where sometimes the lines can get it be a little bit blurred like you know you might sit there and your weight might hold the same but they might drop three four mil across the board in terms of actual body fat um in the calipers so i think that's a little bit more prominent there another one's maybe our dexes over a long term if you know you can replicate them quite accurately um but that being said i don't think they're a hundred percent i definitely would run pretty much these three training performance probably body weight on this uh on the scale and actual visuals in terms of like progress photos same lighting i think those are probably the best three and when used um all together i think have probably the biggest way to gauge the progress for the off season yeah i'd personally rate those as my top three as well and the other aspects have some utility but i think especially also the more advanced someone gets like potentially using calipers like the amount of muscle someone might be gaining and the amount of degree of error in the calipers, I think there's too much of a mishmash there. And it ends up being like, oh, was I did I just measure things a bit differently today? And we have to remember with calipers as well, like it's over like seven or nine sites. So it's not going to assess every area that you are actually gaining muscle. It's only going to assess some of your anthropometry, not all of it. No. Weekly full body MRI. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just keep yeah. in mind those injuries as well. You know, you know better than most DC. Make sure those discs aren't bulging, baby. Yeah, neutral spine. You know what I'm saying? Yep, um, yep. Just full full body muscle biopsy, just weekly, <laughs> just to make sure that you know things are moving very nicely. I would love to see a full body MRI though, like every month, and do that for a year. See how much uh, cross sectional mass on the bicep, and then you go, you know, one month later, see the net how much it's improved. Mm. That would be depressing, I think, as a natural bodybuilder. <laughs> yeah. Do you do you um remember back in back in uni, uh, Lawrence and 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 Jack as well? Like, do you remember? <laughs> just sit this one out, mate. You can. Yeah, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll just go fuck myself. <laughs> like I remember, there was uh, a few labs that we had, and people could opt to be like the person that they took a muscle biopsy of, mm. and um. Yeah, I just remember being like, no, thank you. I, yeah. I, Six weeks I, to earn that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. But, um, I mean, it's pretty damn invasive. And like the tissue that they take out is like, it's pretty, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty considerable. Like, mm. it's not just like this little tiny thing. It's, it's, you know, it's, yeah. yeah <laughs> so I remember sure. seeing that and being like, no, thank you. I'm, yeah. I'm okay. Um, I'd like to use my quads for the next couple of weeks. That's, yeah, cool. Mm. Well, what I'm gathering from this is if you got muscle biopsied in university, you're pretty much never getting your pro card. It's unattainable. No chance. Yeah. Exactly right. It'll be yeah. noticeable once you stand in front of the uh, judges. Mm, they'll just take the just the entire VMO of the quad. Just, yeah. Yeah. I think that's it though, guys. All the questions answered. Thanks to everyone for tuning in. If you're still listening at this stage, 
Make sure to leave us a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And we'll catch you guys next week for the next episode.